0: this is recording.
1: RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who's interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In this season, we will cover content given at the NIJ Forensic Technology Center of Excellence's Impression Pattern and Trace Evidence Symposium. If you missed the symposium, you can view the archives at ForensicCOE.org. In Episode 2 of the IPTI season, Just Science interviews Dr. Ashraf Bastaros from Iowa State University. Dr. Bastaros discusses how fracture mechanics principles can be used with statistical learning tools to give quantitative results. Explore the mind of an engineer and how leveraging other disciplines can aid forensic science. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan.
0: And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm John Morgan, your host. We're here at the Impression Pattern Trace Evidence Symposium in Arlington, Virginia. In today's podcast, uh, we're talking to Ashraf Bostaros. He's the T.A. Wilson Professor of Engineering in the Aerospace Engineering Department at Iowa State University, also, of course, associated with the DOE's Ames Laboratory uh, as well. He's an associate there. His research, which is near and dear to my heart, as regular listeners know, my uh, background is in material science, although I'm not in metallurgy. My work was in optoelectronic semiconductors, but this is cool stuff. And his strength is in linking microstructures and continuum theory through fundamental and applied experimental research. And he's got a uh, paper that he's giving here at IPTIS on Fracture Mechanics-Based Quantitative Matching of Forensic Evidence Fragments. And in particular, you're looking at metals. Is that right? Brittle metals? Yes,
2: brittle metals.
0: And so we're going to be talking a lot today about looking at the surface topography of these fractures and how some uh, fundamental examination of the physics of those fractures as well as doing some quantitative analysis can go together to try to help uh, uh, forensic scientists do their work you are also uh, an example of a good uh, researcher practitioner partnership you actually work pretty closely I know it with at least John Vanderkolk right
2: oh yeah he's the one who introduced me to the whole topic
0: Okay, right. excellent. Well, we just did uh, a podcast, so we're very, very pleased to have you. Welcome. Oh,
2: thank you, appreciate it.
0: How, how did you meet John? How did that work? Oh, that was quite interesting.
2: A uh, long time ago at Iowa State, we have a Midwest Forensic Center. And through the center, many forensic practitioners would come for workshop, for presentation, and so forth. That's where I got to know him. Close to 10 years ago. Back then, the first things I saw, he was like putting pieces together for comparison. When I looked at it, uh, one of the issues hit my head. Well, we always look at fracture as a property of a material. We never cared, like after it fractured, do I put pieces together or not? But I felt there is a lot we can contribute to the field from a material science and fracture mechanics point of view that may make or help in the comparative process.
0: Now, John likes to talk about natural and unnatural processes Mm -hmm. and the variation. You know, his view is that unnatural processes can be repeated and natural processes cannot be repeated. Now, there's a lot of depth behind that. Is that an etiology that he's discussed with you? And how do you feel about that?
2: Yes, like what he described it as a natural or unnatural. We divided, like this is how he divided, but we divide in our language to be something like akin to the material or microstructure, and something that is uncontrollable, which is the applied loading that induces the fracture. So they are like very similar to each other, but sure. just different semantics.
0: I talked to him about a particular example, and that is right. my windshield. So as we speak, a few weeks ago, I don't know what hit my windshield, but something hit my windshield, mm-hmm. and it made a little ding. You know, We've all seen the little spider web kind mm-hmm. of pattern out of that. And then over the weekend, there was a propagation that occurred. <laughs> the old thing skim powder. Uh, well, no, it's still in for the time being because I had to, I had to get right here to the conference. Uh, but it did propagate across the windshield. Sure. And, and it propagates in a very funny
2: way, and you wonder why is the cracks turning?
0: Interestingly, there was a curvature to the yes. to the line. It was real, you know, it was kind of like a an approximation off of a straight line if you were drunk, right? So my argument to him is that that propagation line is not unique. Well, first of all, glass is and crystalline, right? Right. And those lines are determined in large measure by some basic physics of how glass fractures. And therefore, I'm not sure if you, if you pulled apart those two pieces, how easy it would be to match them up again against a large population of windshield pairs. Uh,
2: well, uh, let me separate a little bit here about windshield, because windshield is a very special glass, which is triplex. You have an inner layer, you have a polymer layer in the middle, and you have an outer layer. Mm-hmm. So when you get a stone that hit your glass and you get fracture, the outer layer start to break, but the inner layer is still intact. That's why you still have your whole windshield as ah, one piece. Okay. So that is one type. The other type is a single layer but pre-stressed. And when it gets ahead, the whole glass sheet will become a powder. Okay. Okay.
0: And we had that happen too. Yes. So. And that is primarily like
2: your front shield mm-hmm. will have the polymer layer. The side windows will be unreinforced. So if you get ahead from side window, it will become a powder.
0: My car actually, a few months ago, got hit by a deer and did exactly that. So we right. had, it feels like a million, it might have been, pieces yes. of glass on the back of the car, back the seat of the car. That was
2: the, but where does it come from, the windshield or from the side? It door? came from the side. It was yes. a side
0: hit. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: And the whole idea here in designing of those glasses that you never have a big piece that it, it fractured, it can cut the passenger. Mm-hmm. But if they are powder, the uh, just like you'll get some scratches and nothing will happen. The driver there you have what we call it residual stresses built into the glass. So once you get a crack, if it doesn't have this reinforcement, you have all the defect and the glass will nucleate cracks. And that's how you get this uh, pulverization. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you have many, many nucleation sites that will generate cracks and it is more or less random. Yeah. Not only that, this powder part that you got, you will not be able to put it back together. This is like a million-piece puzzle, and you try to put it, it's quite hard. You can, like, if you stayed Mm -hmm. months to do it, you can. But you'll get a lot of similarity from if you break it in different sheets, it will be impossible to separate them. The front windshield, when it is a triplex one, it has this polymer layer. So if you get a crack, let the crack run on the outer layer, but the inner layer will stay intact. And the direction of the crack is almost, will be parallel to the lowest curvature of your panel. Okay. Okay, so that's why it went like horizontal in the middle part. And once it go to the curves, it will start to go in a different trajectory. Because this curvature have, again, residual stresses, and it will drive the crack in what we call as the lowest energy direction. So... In general, the direction of the crack is determined by how the overall configuration, but the local roughness of those cracks will be different. Okay. So if you get 10 panels and you hit it almost at the same position, you will get the crack propagate on a macro scale. It looks the same on a micro scale or at at a different viewing uh, field of view. You'll find they are very different. Okay. And that is how the uniqueness of this process is like stemming from that.
0: So in your research work that at least what you're presenting here right. at the Eptis is is on microcrystalline metal.
2: Yes, micro or metal uh, like crystalline metals or could be amorphous metals.
0: But those are generally pliable, more pliable than a microcrystalline or crystalline metal.
2: Yes, but uh, here's a trick. Uh, when we sort of uh, sample materials that we work with, most articles encountered in forensic field will be hardened steel. Mm -hmm. because it will be pry tools, which is hardened steel, or it will be stainless steel like uh, cuttery knives or edges or uh, the like, and all of those have like, you know, hardened, meaning you can have a little bit of uh, plastic deformation, Mm -hmm. and then it will fracture. Mm -hmm. And those are very different than like ductile material where you will get a very large plastic deformation, and when you break it, you get the uh, intricate local deformation from the two pieces.
0: In general, a harder material is going to be more brittle.
2: Yes, Mm -hmm. and that is what is encountered primarily in a forensic field. Now, what is the difference between a ductile fracture and a brittle fracture? A brittle fracture in metals, when it fractures, you will get two pieces that you put them together, they'll fit Mm -hmm. quite nicely. So it is like a jigsaw puzzle that you fit them. If it is ductile, locally, the plastic deformation, you will get a lot of dimpling and metal extrusion that you try to put them together. They look matching, but locally, they will not.
0: Right. Because
2: right. of the uh, local uh, ductile so, deformation.
0: So in general, when you have a brittle deformation, you're more likely to get a break line that you can... You can... Uh, we can call it individualization, but it can uh, certainly do a comparison that's reasonable. Uh, actually,
2: you can do it in both ways, but mm-hmm. you just you have to take into account this local deformation. But the classic ones that is encountered mostly in forensic field will be hard metals or hardened materials. Sure, like either heat treated or alloyed, because that is the nature of most of uh, like cut or uh, pry tools.
0: Back when I used to do real science, I didn't avoid metals altogether. So right. we actually did some work in amorphous uh, magnetic materials. Yes, uh, which, and... as you know probably, uh, are very <laughs> very popular in DC electric motors mm-hmm. and transformers these days. Very important materials, and we did a we did a solid state physics laboratory course in those. So we would take you know some alloy of iron boride, you know iron aluminum yep. boride, whatever. <laughs> which are relatively easy to create in um, an amorphous, non-crystalline format. Mm-hmm. And they're nice and ductile, and they also uh, have very good uh, magnetic properties in the sense they have, they're relatively lossless, right? right. And uh, they have very particular uh, transport properties as well, especially as you go down in temperature, they, they look like nice, classic metals. <laughs> and then what we would have them do is we would have them crystallize them. And they're the same compositionally, of yes. course, uh, but their microstructure has changed, they become brittle, Mm-hmm. and the uh, students would often have an easy time working with the native material, the, the amorphous material. But when they got brittle, uh, they would often break. You had to be very gentle. Uh, you touch it to the floor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, of course, their properties went to heck as magnetic materials. Sure. They became very, very lossy magnetic materials. So it was a fun, fun, fun demonstration fun of what right. you're talking about in that and, regard.
2: And also the other part, uh, for the same material, like even steel, if it is heat-treated, if you load it slowly, you mm-hmm. can get it to fracture slightly in a ductile way. Mm-hmm. If you load it in a fast way, it will be, become more brittle. So that mm-hmm. is the time-dependent response of uh, metallic materials. Uh, most for uh, relevant to forensic uh, field will be like the fast loading, because when you are breaking up pry tools, just you are loading and suddenly it will snap. OK. OK, or in an accident, uh, high, high impact or so. So that will be like akin more to the high strain layer rate loading. OK. So it will be more, more brittle than ductile. But it's still, the framework we developed would apply to ductile material, just You have to account to that deformation.
0: And of course, uh, I, in the laboratory, it's very easy to look at all that. I'm sure you have a tensile tester or something oh, yeah. like that. It's so uh, very easy to do that kind of work.
2: When we're doing it for forensic, we did it in two steps. Okay. So the first one we did a controlled fracture where we brought either uh, knives or stainless steel bars and we loaded it in uh, what we call three-point bend or just a, like a bend configuration in a very okay. controlled way. And we were afraid actually that since this process is very controlled, we'll not be able to distinguish between the fracture surfaces. Mm -hmm. And amazingly, if you put like, we did it in groups of 10, so you put the 10 sample together, the first visual that the fracture trajectory or crack trajectory, they look the same. Mm -hmm. But when you try to look at the topology of that fracture surface on the fracture pieces, they are very different. Because they are controlled from multiple parameters and those multiple parameters really showed that the process is unique to every event.
0: I see. Now, that you're going to have different alloys are going to have different macro characteristics or class characteristics in their fracture mechanics, right? So Tell us about your right. particular research project. So what you was your said, theory right. to start with and what were you trying to yeah. do?
2: Since you said the class characteristics, so, for example, let's pick alloys that is used for uh, knives or cutter in particular, like the 440 steel, mm-hmm. okay? If you take any manufacturers, they'll have their trade secrets in the alloying that they add and the heat treatments they do for the uh, alloy. So if I take like either a set of, sample, uh, of knives from the same manufacturer, either manufactured consecutively or randomly, you'll find particular class characteristic in those, which will be at the range of the grain size and grain distribution. Where they are all done by the same process, you get the statistical distribution of the grain to be the same. Mm-hmm. If I get knife A, knife B, knife C, I check it, they all look the same. Then if I go down to the micro-mechanism of failure, like if I say grain is about the range on the alloy, uh, anywhere from 5 micron to 50 micron, and because it varies how, how the process. So you'll get that distribution. But then if I go further down the scale, how does this grain uh, decohere from each other or break? Mm-hmm. So that is the local material resistance to fracture, and this is akin to the material that it will form dimples, the dimples will look the same. So if I go down in the scale, all fractures will look the same, and they will be indistinguishable. So that is what is dictated by the material.
0: That's Uh, interesting, yeah. So it must break at the boundaries between small crystals or grains and material.
2: Right, and when they break, the are like there is a particular mechanism that will interact between local deposits as a grain boundary, and you will see some little dimples or cleavage fracture. And if I get you like ten fracture surfaces at that scale, which is will be in the range of ten micron to uh, to a lower level that you usually see it by SEM you will not be able to distinguish between them.
0: So was 440 stainless what you used for all
2: of your work? Uh, I used a couple of alloys, but 440 was one of the common ones.
0: Okay, so the knife manufacturers actually are that much different. So they'll start with the same composition alloy, but they'll actually do such different heat treatments that you're actually seeing differences in the grain sizes?
2: Uh, Yes. uh, Grain size, this is a very interesting issue. Get any knife. Mm-hmm. Okay, that has from the spine to the edge mm-hmm. with a little uh, curvature. Mm-hmm. They do that actually by rolling. And because of that rolling, you'll find that at the edge, the cutting edge, grains are in the order of 10 to 20 micron. Mm-hmm. At the spine, which is the thicker part of the mm-hmm. blade, the grains could be from 80 to 100 micron in the same blade. I see. So knives is a very unique beast because of the, how it is processed. Mm -hmm. you get a variability of the green microstructure within the knife.
0: I've never really thought about it from the perspective of sharpening, for example. I mean, so a, a, I assume a more finely grained material would be easier and more, it'd be more effective in terms of what the sharpening will do for you, but it also is going to be much more brittle as well. No, actually,
2: this is the conundrum of all cutting tools or chisels, any, uh, any of these forming tools, that you need it to be as brittle and as hard as it could be on the surface, and you need it to be in the core of it ductile. So, any of those cutting tools, you have to get this uh, gradient in the uh, microstructure.
0: So, you, so I guess and, there's a lot of quenching involved. It, keep... Exactly. Yeah.
2: That, that is the classical quenching or heat treatment that, like, if uh, all the steel smith guys that used to do chisels, yeah. you heat it, then you quench it quickly, then you pull it out. Right. And this is like you give kiss hardening for the surface, you mm-hmm. get fine grain, you pull it out, you get the core heat. To do a uh, retreatment, mm-hmm. then you leave it a little bit in the air to, to uh, stabilize, then you quench it in oil. So you do it in water, then you do it in oil. Okay. So there is like, even those like steel smiths that used to do it by hand, they know that trick. Same things for cutting tools. You need the edge to be refined grains, harder, but the core of the blade to be more, bigger grains to be ductile. So when you are hammering with that, you don't snap it every time you are trying to cut something hard.
0: Sure. And then over time, after you've ground down that edge, pretty much you're down to the ductile uh, material and it's worthless.
2: Then it's worthless. <laughs> Actually, it's not worthless. What would happen is that every time you try to use it, it will dull very quickly. Mm-hmm. So this is a little bit of art in the whole process. So <clears> back again to the problem of uh, fracture yes. and uh, fracturing an article found in a forensic uh, study. You have features on the fracture surface that is akin to the material and to the microstructure. That is, for example, the grain distribution. Another one that is akin to the processing that happened to the blade, which coming from the heat treatment and so forth, that will control the micromechanism of failure, which Mm -hmm. will be like, for example, in a simple way, ductile versus brittle failure. And from that perspective, you bring 100 knives, you all look alike in that range. And that range now is the green size, let's say tens of micron, and the sub-green size, which is the micro, micro and nanomechanism of failure, which go from sub-micron all the way to the nanometer scale. Mm-hmm. You look on fracture surfaces, they all look alike. Mm-hmm. So what is the distinction here? The distinction is coming from, let me bring it from uh, fracture mechanics, that when you apply your external loading on a sample, the way you apply it is unique not two samples when you are trying to load it will be the same, even if it is loaded in a systematic way like in a tensile test. How so? Because when I'm loading uh, my sample in a fracture or in a tensile frame or in a bending frame, the cracking will start from the local inhomogeneity. Right. Okay? And this is the one that is, will be statistically different from one sample to another. Then you will say, okay. Why, if I put a glass piece and I break it, I get a powder? And when I put a metal piece, I break it, I get one crack. Typically one or Typically, at most yeah. two. This goes to a very different trick, that in glass, you have too many defects. Mm-hmm. Okay,
0: and when I apply a load... Glass is basically a whole bunch of defects. Right, and
2: when I apply <laughs> yep. a load on it, all those defects will propagate and the inertia will take a big effect there that you will get percolation of too many cracks that will propagate in parallel. Mm-hmm. So that's why you get a powder. But when I have a metal, I have many stochastic defects. I get what we'll call it a stress riser or high loading point. Mm-hmm. But only while I have high loading point, the weakest link will run first. And once it runs, since it is slightly compliant, it can unload the rest and I get one crack running.
0: Sure. So, okay. if you have a point that is a millimeter across, and you have five micron grain sizes, there's thousands of thousands. points that could be okay. subject to that, yes. which could be your weak point. In the, weak in, point. Yeah.
2: Then, when that crack is running, it will, in its trajectory, select the weak point all the time. Mm-hmm. So that is how the uniqueness is coming. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is that you have a bunch of stochastic distribution of defect, and a crack is running, picking those weak points. That is how you get like two cracks will never be alike. Mm-hmm. Or that is how it posts or this uh, premises of uniqueness from one surface to another.
0: So theoretically, if you have a broken knife, you yes. have one half of the knife and you're trying to match up the other one. There should be a unique way in which uh, John told me that you really despise this idea that he's going to like crunch them together. Because oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's semi-destructive, right? Yeah. Hypothetically, oh. let's just say if you did that, you should be, it should be unique in that regard.
2: That is correct. And what we should, like, let me be careful of what we are doing versus a forensic practitioner, what he or she are doing. In forensic science, how do they do the matching? First, they try to do visual. Mm-hmm. They put the two pieces. So if they fit, that is like a puzzle. They start to think, okay, there is probability of a match. So this first thing is they do a visual inspection and see that, okay, the dimension fit and so forth. And by the way, no matter how much we put computerized level, we need that initial screen. Then they do the second uh, part by doing uh, comparative microscopies, as they put the two halves under microscope and they look for common features between them. So to this extent, is excellent. I mean, nothing can refute that, and that is how it is done. However, after you do that, we always what is the point of attack is that this is subjective, and you have no statistical basis of the uh, process. Right. So that is the two culprit that is really weakens the technique. That you do Yes, I mean features are common, but you always ask how unique are those features. If I put hundred sample, am I ever going to get that or not? You cannot answer that by just qualitative comparison. So the power of what we try to do is we try to see. Okay, what is the feature we can measure? We can numerically quantify as a number, and you, we can use it in a statistical model. So when we say it is a match here is a probability of a match. And when it is what you did visually, no, it is fundamentally acceptable with quantified error. So that is what we really try to do is support that what forensic scientists do visually from the basics of fracture mechanics and from material science. Okay. And added to that, a big part of uh, statistical analysis we did to really do this quantification and prove or find quantified probability for the process.
0: Now, when you did your uh, uh, imaging of the surfaces, you used optical interferometry, the Zygo instrument. Uh,
2: actually, the Zygo is, it seems, a lot, it's quite funny. We use Zygo for about like 12, 15 years. It is like technologies that stemmed maybe at early uh, or late 90s. early 2000s, Mm -hmm. and start to be common in material science as a topology or topographic tools that bridges the old technology of stylus, Mm -hmm. and with a very high resolution that you go to the range of the submicron level Mm -hmm. very easily from optical measurement.
0: Now, just so the folks at home know, uh, if you want to learn more about optical topography, uh, we've actually, our center has uh, not only done a landscape report on different systems for use in firearms examination, but I just did a webinar here recently. Yes, I, I just
2: heard it. Did you listen? And, okay. uh, yes, oh, uh-huh. yeah, it was uh-huh. excellent.
0: Oh, thank you. And so it's actually, I think, something that's going to become more common in the crime laboratories. Yes. I, I don't know if anybody's put an interferometry-based system into a crime laboratory. I think
2: I saw one a couple of years ago, but I got a lot of comments from them that they have very hard time of how to use it in forensic. Yeah. And it is. Unless you really know what you're doing, you can get a very deceiving result out of it. And actually, Jean uh, van der Kolk helped me quite a bit because I found that you have to be very restrictive of how you handle the sample and how you align it and so forth. And I was telling him, like, we found that really for our technique to work, I need to put all those constraints. Mm. So he buffed me and he says, well, Ashraf, that's what we do in comparative microscope. That if you don't align your sample well and if you don't really get the lightning on the two halves to be exact, you will not get the same feature to pop in your field of view. Mm -hmm. So it is a common practice that you do all of this initial alignment and uh, of the two halves when you are trying to image. If you don't do that, you will get a very uh, deceiving result. So it is the same techniques you use. You have to import it to this more sophisticated tool to try to apply.
0: So in terms of the characterization, the algorithm you use to develop a statistical representation of a a surface, is that something that you all developed yourself? Yes. So So let me divide it
2: to three pieces. Okay. We have first the microscope that you get the initial image. Mm -hmm. And the initial image is nothing but think of it as the height distribution over a grid of, of the surface. Now, that initial image, not every image will work for you. Because even that microscope is powerful, it has its own limitation. For example, if you have a very deep crevice, you'll not be able to image it correctly because mm-hmm. you get a light shadowing. Effect. Yes. So you get a little bit of not uncertainty, but there is an errors in how you get the image. You have to know it, and you have to be clear about those. So we have first you get your image, then we do a cleaning phase of all those either missing data or what we think it is out of bound data just to eliminate it mm-hmm. now are we cooking or doctoring n? no this is a standard image processing techniques for all handling of images
0: now you know there are some folks and I've, yes. I, I who are very critical of, of any kind of looking at anything other than raw data and
2: and, and, and. Uh, this is where we have to really work hard and i really commend this podcast that we educate the community especially mm-hmm. lawyers and defense lawyers Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, the very first numerically altered image mm-hmm. was done when a fingerprint, I think in early 2000s, was lifted from a pillow, a mm-hmm. pillowcase. And just when you look at zero image, you cannot see anything. You see the texture of the pillow. But once it is mathematically a well-known technique mm-hmm. with the theoretical foundations that if I subtract the texture of the pillow from that image, immediately you see the fingerprint. Mm-hmm. So. For that case, I can't remember the exact number of the case, but for that case, lawyers were saying, oh, you doctored in the process, and actually, no. We have the information. We separate the background from the fingerprint. And once you did that, you see the fingerprint very clear. Mm -hmm. So this is where I think for a non-forensic person like myself, I can provide the background for any of those techniques. So mm-hmm. when we get a hit from a non-expert about any of those techniques says, nope, this is how the science works, and here is the fundamental basis of it and how we can use it in a very methodical way.
0: Sure, and I think saying it in a methodical way is the... Critical issue yes, here yes. that is that you're not just playing around with the no, image. I'm you're not using fooling, I'm, a, no. a very particular way of uh, approaching this. This is all a very images.
2: well established field for 50, 60 years now of digital image processing. Yeah, and there is all the artifact I was telling you. They are well characterized in the field. We call it salt and pepper noise, where you get like a high response from one local pixel, but the overall pattern it is the same. I'm not doctoring in any details. Just I'm removing what we call high-frequency noise, or a noise Mm -hmm. that is just imposed from the measurement tool. Right. And they have no effect on the base image that you get. And by the way, any camera, or like even your cell phone, when you take a picture, Mm -hmm. you didn't know that not every pixel in your phone is working. Right. I'm not sure if you know that or not. In manufacturing of those cell phones uh, Mm -hmm. array, you get a defected pixel. Mm-hmm. So when you get a defected pixel, there is something called the lookup table that actually it can do multiple things. Either do a correction factor for the bad pixel response or it can take the average of the surrounding and substitute to that. And that is how when you get your picture, you get it edited or very nice presented. Right. And this is an all digital uh, translation of from between a physical image and a digital image. Mm-hmm. And it is standard. You have like thousands and thousands of papers defending all of those techniques.
0: Well, I mean, there's something fundamental about it. You know, measurement by itself is a representation. No it's a representation it. yeah. with an
2: error and with uh, noise and all of that. And let's just clear the field, put the fact, and here is it. It mm-hmm. is the same way how you process a DNA. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it is the same way. This is like a new technique for us, and we have to put the fundamentals of how we process those images. Mm-hmm. So that was the first part getting the image in the right way. Then the second part is the start of what we we'll call it analysis. And analysis is we take that image, we break it to the size scale or the what we call it frequency component or for year space. Mm-hmm. And in a different way, think of it, if you want to look at an image or if you look like, for example, the room we are sitting in. If I want to tell you, build this room. So you tell me, okay, give me the dimension mm-hmm. and I'll start to build it. Or in a different way, I can give you the bill of materials. Bill of materials meaning, okay, I need how many bricks, I need how many windows, the size of the bricks, the size of the window. Mm-hmm. So the bill of material, when I describe it like that, that's what we call it the frequency component or the characteristics of wavelengths on the image. Sure. Okay, when I give you the dimensions, that is the, what we call it, the physical space. So first you take the image in the physical space, then we dissect it to its uh, wavelengths or frequency component. And that's what we do it in the mathematical Fourier transform. Again, another standard way.
0: At this point, also, you need to have an understanding of what your hypothesis is going to be about where the characteristic. Exactly. So, are you going so far as saying, well, some of this, you know, at the five micron level, as we were talking about before, right. is not relevant to the individualization of exactly. the crack? Exactly.
2: Exactly. So, let me take you backward. Which is which scale I should image? Yeah. Okay. How big? And what is the resolution of taking the scale? Forget the analysis for now. Yeah. So this one will come from two parts. First, I have to understand the material. And the material, the parameter I want from it is the grain size. How big is the grain?
1: Mm-hmm. So you
2: give me material one has a 5 micron grain, and material two has 100 micron grain. So which field of view I should look at? That was the first question we have. So this answer comes from two steps. The first one is... The details of the fracture from fracture mechanics tells me that you have ahead of every crack what we call a process zone. Mm -hmm. The process zone size of interest, we prove it to be two grain size. So the first length scale here should be two grain size in uh, size. Two grain size will be 10. If it's 100 micron, two grain size will be 200 micron.
0: Does the breadth of the distribution affect that, or usually, or is it? Are they usually more controlled than that? Uh, like, some materials you might have a range of like three to seven microns, okay. or in some yeah. Right. I mean, so
2: the uh, like whenever you say three to seven, so you have a lower bound, upper bound, and a mean. So let's mm-hmm. take the mean as a good representation. Okay. Okay. Because you have like in imaging, will have a tolerance for that. Mm-hmm. That's why you will never get a one data point. You will get the distribution. So the first one will be the distribution of the grain or multiple of the grain size. Second question is how big of field of view that I should look at to show me uniqueness. Mm -hmm. And this is where it comes from, the interaction of the applied load with the uh, material. Right. So for example, if I hold a pen and I bend it one way, so the crack will be propagating in the direction of applying load. Mm -hmm. So you'll find that the way you hold the pen and the way you apply the load, will give you particular direction of that crack propagation. Sure. So think of it, I have a pry tool, and I'm wiggling it in a door or something. When it breaks, it will break again exactly to the guy who was holding it and how the tool was positioned. Sure. So that gives you what we'll call the river marks or the directionality of the uh, feature. In a very different uh, studies, uh, when what we call it uh, fractography or topology of fracture surfaces. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, done from mid-80s, that they looked at fracture surface, how do I distinguish between ductile and brittle, and how is the distribution of all those features. So there is a length scale that always persists in the range of about 10 grain size. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if I start to image my sample uh, at the sub-grain, you increase it, you increase it, you increase it, and you say that the bigger the field of view, the roughness will increase to a level that will saturate. And that saturation level actually provides the characteristic roughness of the surface. Mm -hmm. And it is unique to every surface you touch. So when you told me how big of a field of view I should be, I should be at the characteristic roughness that I should be able to catch that. And this is in the range of about... 10 grains. And the smallest one should be this 2 grain. So your field of view should be at the maximum level, or at least should be about 10 grain in dimension.
0: Right. And that is, yes. OK, okay. so that's not, not only your fo- field of view, but that's going to also inform your so that algorithms a, in yes. terms of matching. So
2: algorithms. that yeah. is the field of view I should get. I should at least get 10 grain in my field of view. Yeah. But also don't go to that I get 100 grain, otherwise I'll not be able to distinguish any feature. Sure. OK, so that is the first trick. So if you give me an alloy or a fractured surface with five grain, mm-hmm. so my field of view should be about 50 micro. Sure. Mm-hmm. OK, then if you give me 100 micron grain, my field of view should be a 1,000 micro. Yeah. So that mm-hmm. is the first things. that is why I was telling you how you use those t- tools, this mm-hmm. microscope or this three-dimensional interferometer mm-hmm. to get the topology. So that is the first things we establish that at least we, get, we need to get those thin grain in the field of view. Mm -hmm. then once we take that, we take it into our spectral analysis, and we divide it or we try to get the unique frequencies. Mm -hmm. So what we found, the very first thing that, what we call it, river marks on the surface. So river marks are dictated by the applied load. Mm -hmm. Okay, Not two river marks will be the same. So river marks meaning that is like marks or patterns, uh, starvation on the fractured surface. They will be coming how I applied the load on the surface. Sure. So now, again. So a little gorges, basically, yes. on and, the, uh, yeah. So mm-hmm. how, how are the controls? They are controlled by the grain size, the material resistance to fracture, which is intrinsic to the material, and the external applied load. This combination of both and the, the, the statistical distribution of defect. Mm-hmm. So I have a random variable, which is statistical distribution of defect material parameter, which is grain size, yes. and resistance of material to fracture, then a unique applied load, the combination of those will provide the uniqueness of this pattern. Sure. OK, and that is the premise of the uniqueness of how we really you characterize, like, uh, like I bring 10 samples, break it in the same way, the details of the fracture topology at that length scale will be different. OK. So this is the funny part. If I go down the scale, they will look, all look the same. Mm-hmm. If I go up in the scale, I'll not see it. But around that scale, I'll be able to detect those unique features. See, it is quite, yeah. quite, quite interesting. And this is, will bring you back to the class and
0: subclass characteristics and individuality. Sure.
2: Okay? So that, that is the same language that you use in forensic uh, yeah. analysis.
0: Or level one, two, and three from yes. John's
2: perspective. Right. But, yeah. Or
0: level one, level two, level three. Yeah. And,
2: and, and now I can bring you the feature mathematically founded uh, to that level.
0: Sure. And the cool part about that in the end, really, is that it's based on the physics of what's going on in the material. So you're not... This isn't just like you're you're applying something that sounds right, you're fitting to it. You're actually looking at the physics of the material and then deriving your approach from that. So we put a lot down here on the podcast. So let me... Let me, let me, let's try to, to wrap up because people are going to be able to also get the archive yes. of your presentation. There are uh, a lot of different approaches to this and there are some folks who uh, would take a look at what you're doing and they would say, no, 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 you're throwing away a lot of data, actually. And to the contrary, we are bringing a lot of data to the table. <laughs> That's right.
2: Uh, like I, I would say that we are one of the groups that we are not throwing anything. What I was telling you, we have like a couple of things, you get the image? We do the, uh, what we do with the spectral analysis. Mm-hmm. Then we compare the, like, the two pairs together to get a number. Then we run it into a full statistical decision-making process. Now, for every surface, we don't get one pair of image. Mm-hmm. Actually, we go all the way to nine pairs of images. So we make our decision based on the totality of the appearance of the surface. Mm-hmm. Because maybe some part, like you can have a big ridge or a cliff, that you get a a lot of uh, very hard in the analysis. But when you do it on a bigger number of images, you reduce the uncertainties in
0: in a big way. And of course, in a a forensic sample, you might be able to get you know nine or ten pieces across a very right. large geography or you might only have a little fragment but as well. even little fragment i'm telling you like is the field of view we're doing because the grains we are dealing with about
2: 20 to 30 micron yeah. so our field you not need view, much right it's 500 micron so if i do 10 images at best i'm about two three millimeter yeah okay so that is one then you will say okay but 10 images that is too much mm-hmm. if they are high quality from two images i can get a decision like you will find that you did the decision, the probability, and increasing the number of images didn't improve the probability. But if I get like, for example, three images, one pair of them is bad. Mm -hmm. That will start to influence it. So that is why you say, okay, the safest level, we have first to grade the image quality, Mm -hmm. give it a score. Then if it passes that score, you start your analysis. Don't make your decision on a lower number of Mm -hmm. data. Let's go back to the forensic scientist making a jigsaw puzzle comparison. Mm-hmm. They never try to say, OK, only two point match. No, they take the whole fracture surface and bring many features. Yeah. Then we always say the following. We have a match or inconclusive. Because the unmatched population, I cannot characterize it. It's huge. So I, I, I we never try to put exactly like, if it doesn't match, what is the probability of no match? Because I don't have the dimensionality of the population. But when it is a match, I can give you the certainty of the match. With the power of statistical learning tools that we added to it, it really become very easy to distinguish between many, many classes of material. Well,
0: classic failure analysis would suggest that you should be able to tell the difference between types of breakage, right? Between Mm -hmm. twisting versus pulling versus impact and, and that kind of thing. Ceramics are classic in that case, very easy to to determine in that regard.
2: But actually, we beated ourselves to do a controlled experiment. Yeah. A controlled experiment, meaning 10 pieces, we pull it in the same way. Mm -hmm. And while we pull it in the same way, but the uniqueness of the distribution of defect dictated the topology to be different from one sample. Sure. So we did it both ways, either a controlled experiment and we check it, or random experiment. Random meaning just hold, hold a knife and break it okay. in, in, a, in any different way. The success of this project relied on three prongs. First, we have John van der Kolk who steered us in the right way. This is the right way you do it, this is the wrong way you do it if you are a forensic scientist. His help really guided us of how to generate a sample, what is acceptable, what is not acceptable. Then having a person like myself in the fracture mechanics and materials, I know the background of a fracture process and how it is influenced with the microstructure, how we do the right imaging, what is the skill to get the images. So yes. to that level, that was great. But when I was doing alone when with the zudo statistics, I was getting success rate like in discrimination maybe 80%, 90%. Mm-hmm. Then once I start work with Bill Meeker and Ranja Maitra, They brought me to a very different level of how we really pose a proper statistical analysis and a proper handling of the data and the data size critical to make a decision. Mm-hmm. So I think having the three component integrated together resulted in where we are today.
0: The practitioner, the physicist, engineer, and material scientist, and the statistician. Right. To, to, Maybe to, yeah. the
2: only thing left is the lawyer.
0: <laughs> well, we'll keep them out of the right. scientific <laughs> laboratory. They can argue out in court if they are. Right.
2: Like. What I like here is that we really know, if, if we really want to bring this one to the field, we know what we should teach them or how they should learn the trade
0: Mm -hmm. to be able to really understand it or or utilize it one way or another. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Bastaris. Uh, Appreciate having you on Just Science.
1: Thank Thank you. Next week on Just Science, we will have Dr. Alicia Wilcox and Heidi Eldridge discuss factors that influence a juror's interpretation of expert testimony.